Hey guys, welcome back to our luxurious conversation about Andor. This is a two-parter because we had a lot of things to discuss about this amazing limited series. Now, back to the conversation. We know they fried a hundred men on level two. We know that they are making up our sentences as we go along. We know that no one outside here knows what's happening. And now we know that when they say we are being released, we are being transferred to some other prison to go and die. And that ends today. There is one way out right now. The building is ours. You need to run, climb, kill. You need to help each other. You see someone who's confused, someone who's lost. You get them moving and you keep them moving until we put this place behind us. Do you feel like you've said everything that you came to say when it came to what are the filmmakers trying to say or what are the showrunners trying to say more accurately? Yeah, I feel confident that we have the two primary themes and the ends justify the means, the struggle against impossible odds and one way out together. Or are those last two kind of the same? I feel like that last one is a, a sub-theme almost, in my mind, of the mm. struggle against overwhelming odds. But yeah, I, I, or I wonder if you could say like, a third sub-theme is you can't run from evil. It's going to find you. Sort of the Edmund Burke. Yeah, I like that. I, especially the Empire. It would be easy to roll over and just um, turn a blind eye, except you can't. Like, Cassian literally gets arrested for standing around. And that's right. this is how far the Empire's come. There's nowhere. No one is really safe. And, and that is compelling as a reason for Cassian, but he, you could take it a step further and say, there's lots of innocent people that are suffering because of the empire and who's going to stand up for them. It's almost, I mean, Cassian almost needed to be thrown into prison to come face to face with the real victims of the empire. Otherwise it's just too easy for him to look away. It echoes Martin Luther King Jr.'s words that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Can you expound on that a little bit more? Cause I hear that and I, I've always liked that quote, but I don't know if I could really explain it. Well, you got to contextualize what Martin Luther King Jr. was trying to do. I'm not sure, but I, I think that line is from Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Again, mm -hmm. not sure. Someone will fact check me on that, rightly so. Martin Luther King Jr. was trying to shake good, decent Americans out of apathy to what was happening in their backyards mm -hmm. and in their cities and mm -hmm. to their brothers and sisters in Christ. The Letter from a Birmingham Jail specifically, is written to the pastors of America who are apathetic. King was so rich with his knowledge of scripture. I mean, he was coming from a Christian worldview, hmm. front and center, like no bones about it. Uh, and that's what he says when he quotes the prophets. It's like, why are you trying to offer other forms of sacrifice, right, loosely paraphrased, when you're neglecting justice and mercy? Hmm. The, that's the thing. Those are the things God's people are supposed to care about. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to shake these complacent pastors by the collar and say, uh, you don't get to turn a blind eye to the, the injustice and the suffering of 
your fellow Christians and just fellow human beings, mm. right? Mm. I wish I was better read on Martin Luther King Jr. because I could have described that so much more eloquently like he did. And I guess that's just a chance for me to say, go read the primary sources for yourself. You won't regret it. Well, and it reminds me a little bit of something I just heard on uh, from Chuck Colson listening to your your day job podcast. Chuck Colson was him who said men have an infinite capacity to deceive themselves or for self-deception, hmm. something along those lines. In a world where there's, there's corruption, there's a big bad empire, but the empire is made up of people living their everyday lives. And I'm thinking of a lot of those characters that we now feel can we can relate to, Dedra or Cyril, they're just doing their their best, but they're turning a blind eye to the fact that they're serving a corrupt power. Yes. Chuck Colson, and therefore our ministry, is really fond of a quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, where he says, if only it were easy enough to separate everybody into two camps, the good guys and the bad guys. Mm. But no, the line separating good and evil travels uh, essentially across those boundaries and through the heart of every man. Meaning, if you could just take all the bad people and do away with them, Right. You, there wouldn't be anyone left. Oh, man, I was <sighs> right. just reading in Matthew that Jesus, if he had come to bring the judgment that the Jews were anticipating and to finally liberate them, then no one would be safe because everyone, that line dividing good and evil runs through everyone. No one would be safe from his judgment. If he was, he is, there is a day of judgment coming, but until his work on the cross, um, no one was going to be safe from that, even the quote-unquote good guys. Yeah, totally, because that's the core conundrum Christianity is resolving. You know, if we're all God's enemies, but we also feel the tension because we know right and wrong when we see it. So mm. it's not that we don't know, it's just that we're hypocrites, and we like to ignore our evil in the face of, you know, evil that we perceive in the people around us. Yeah. Christianity resolves that uniquely, and this is where Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount are like, you have to forgive. If someone asks for your forgiveness— mm. If you don't forgive them, then God won't forgive you because hmm. the converse of that is that God forgives you at what when you ask him to hmm. and you don't deserve it. And the reason he's able to do that is because his justice is satisfied in Jesus's death on the cross, essentially. Hmm. So Christianity uniquely is able to reconcile justice and mercy in that sense. Yeah, the the parable that brings that home for me right away is the servant who is forgiven this huge debt, right? And then he yeah. turns around and demands full payment from his servant. And when the master finds out, he puts him in jail and is like, you, you're yeah. evil. You're evil. I forgave you this much and you won't even forgive your servant. Yes, that same principle restricts us from an ends justify the means mentality. Because if your enemies are just so pure evil, like they are despicable and heinous, there's a sense in which we all people want to use that then to say, therefore, I'm justified in doing X, Y, or Z to them. Hmm. Right? And, and at some point saying, yeah, the good things I'm trying to accomplish justify using this grody, you know, means. And Christianity is able to uniquely negotiate that balance. And it starts with Jesus' renewed ethic when he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. 
That's a hard saying, okay? And I think it takes a little bit of fleshing out here because a Christian worldview does not preclude, first of all, the legitimate use of force um, in, in order to protect justice. I think that's why Christians are told, hey, more or less, as far as it depends on you, respect the government because mm-hmm. governments are necessary to prevent injustice from happening. Mm-hmm. Likewise, Scripture is is actually, it has examples of resisting tyrannical governments on occasion. Uh, you could look at the judges, uh, although you got to be careful because not everything the judges did is something we should do. But you could look at like David killing Goliath and rescuing the Israelites from the Philistines. Mm-hmm. You could look at um, just so many illustrations and examples like that. So it's hard, right? But Jesus comes to fundamentally turn the human heart upside down. Because it's only human to say, they did this to me, I'm going to do this to them. And take what is supposed to be an attitude of loving justice and turn it into an attitude of vengeance. But for Christians, vengeance is never acceptable. Is there a Christian basis for a rebellion? I mean, that is a huge question. And far be it from us to think we could tackle it, you know, conclusively on Cinema Historical. The fact is, Christians have been debating this for like... 2000 years, right? Because on one hand, as we've said, there there is actually, it doesn't seem like the Bible is committing Christians uh, or believers in Yahweh to completely renounce force entirely. Uh, and there's lots of illustrations for how, uh, for why that is, um, right? We have the judges, we have David and Goliath, we have, um, yeah, like when a centurion comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? And Jesus doesn't say, dude, stop being a centurion and go be a monk. He Hmm. says, uh, do justice in essence. Don't take more in taxes than you're supposed to take, et cetera, Hmm. et cetera. On the Hmm. other hand, Jesus says lots of things like, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. When Peter is like trying to prevent Jesus from getting arrested, he whips out his sword, cuts off a dude's ear. Well, Jesus is like, put away your sword, Peter. People who live by the sword die by the sword. Right? Yeah. And he heals the dude's ear who uh, Peter chopped it off. Amazing story. Just showing that Jesus is, his mission was different. And he rises above the sort of human means for establishing his kingdom. So somewhere in the middle then, Christians are left wrestling with uh, the reality that uh, we are not meant to spread Christianity by violent means. That violence uh, is not like a good tool. If anything, it's a necessary evil, right? It's not the ethics of the kingdom. It's certainly not to be uh, perpetrated in our personal lives. Hmm. Um, like we should never take personal violent retaliation against people. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. anything, it, it's like for the use of defense of other people, right? So all kinds of uses of violence are completely off the table for Christians. But there is that middle ground and, and where, where we have an obligation to uphold justice to the best of our ability this side of eternity, right? Before God comes back with a sword, by the way, to make all things, com- all things new, to punish injustice and evil and do away with it forever. In the meantime, we're struggling with how to protect people in a fallen system. Mm-hmm. So Christian philosophers, starting with St. Augustine, uh, have really wrestled with the idea of just war theory. And uh, it, I just want to give a quick outline of that. It's got a few tenets that Christians uh, are to hold to, right? Like it, a just war is fought on behalf of a legitimate government in the sense that uh, it's not just uh, random street gangs or vigilantes 
Uh, so if you just one man army decides to declare, to, to declare war against the United States, for example, that would probably fall outside of the, the wavelength of legitimate government. Mm-hmm. Um, it needs to be a last resort. You have to have tried virtually everything else to resolve the difficulties. Uh, it has to be for a just and upright cause. Like you can't just go to war to seize someone's resources or, you know, you like mm. their land and you're just going to take it. Yeah, you just decide that the Ukraine belongs to Russia. <laughs> right. For example. Right. There has to be a probability of success. Um, mm. A, mm. a tiny nation should not declare war on a massive nation that they have no hope of conquering. Something like that. Uh, Mm. Augustine would argue and Christian philosophers would argue. Because then all the lives that are going to be lost in the war are, could have been avoided by refraining from going to war. Exactly. Yeah. And then finally, a just war has to use moral means to accomplish its ends. And that ties definitely into Mm. what we're talking about with Andor, like do the ends justify the means? And again, it's complicated because in the real world, things are often murky and it's tough to understand what to do. And so, but in general, you you know, like, I don't know why this is so silly, but I'm thinking of James P. Sullivan at the end of Monsters, Inc., where he's like, I'd kidnap a thousand children if I had to. <laughs> You're like, no, James P. Sullivan, Whoa. no. <laughs> That's not how we're going to solve the monster energy crisis. <laughs> yeah. So as far as you possibly can, and that, that ends versus means thing where, like, let's just use whatever means possible to win, that is such yeah. a slippery slope. Yeah. And I think... Christianity does not, this is critical, Christianity doesn't prescribe every single incident Mm. where a Christian might or might not be able to use force in a justifiable way. Hmm. What what it does is come to transform the human heart. Mm. And that's why I think Jesus' words on go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, don't repay evil with evil, what he's doing is trying to reach into the depths of the human spirit and tear out evil and rehabilitate something that that all of us need to do because uh we're prone to violence and retribution for their own sake people are naturally drawn to that yeah so he's come to renew the human spirit in that way it is funny whenever i hear those um those sayings of jesus I sometimes, I want to attack it and be like, well, what do you mean turn the other cheek? Like, what if someone was trying to blah, 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 and I like go to the worst case scenario or the most unreasonable scenario and not like use your thinking brain for a second and, and just hear what he's saying. He's not saying definitively in every situation, this is the right thing to do is to back down from a fight, but he's changing your attitude and your understanding because not every scenario in every case is written in scripture, but what we're meant to receive is the, the wisdom of God and the, and a corrected value structure. And then we proceed from there. Do you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. And I think you're right. I want to be clear though, too, that what Jesus's words are commandments. You know, he's not, oh, yes. it's not a loose suggestion, which I don't think is what you're saying. No, no. But, but it's critical to understand what he meant and what he meant in context. Yeah. So even if there's a world where Christians sometimes need to use violence to uphold justice, like a, a, yeah. a police officer or something who's appropriately, boy, it's always important in this cultural moment and context to say appropriately using force to yeah. restrain, you know, gangs or murderers. Christians might have to use that, but Jesus made sure to correct something 
that it's at the heart of human beings because we're also prone to think like violence is going to solve all the problems. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you can, I mean, a lot of Jesus's followers, the zealots in particular, maybe Peter in the garden thought, mm-hmm. hey, if we just like kill the bad guys, we're going to be fine. But Jesus knows that that's not true. And his mission was deeper. Yeah. So he came, he didn't even just come to just give pure pacifism because that's not going to solve humans, humanity's evils either. Yeah. He came yeah. to change and renew the human heart. And when he did that, he just flipped our value structure on the head in a way that says, not resisting an evil person keeps in mind their humanity and that the end goal is their salvation before God, not just to destroy them, right? Ooh, yeah. So Christian ethics have to take those commandments of Jesus seriously. The question that we debate is, okay, what what did they exactly mean? Ultimately, I wanted to just add this one last piece too. All theories of Christian government, and by extension, because this is the way that history played out, Western government started with one line that Jesus gave in response to a brutal question. The Pharisees come to him and they say, teacher, uh, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was like the ultimate got you question. I mean, picture literally the Jewish people are living under the boot of a tyrannical Roman empire, literally the empire. Yeah. You know, they're being crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. These taxes are not trivial. They're exorbitant and on a people who are mostly impoverished in the ancient world. And for selfish gain. Like totally. The Romans would just they'd they'd charge extra and then take that for themselves and Totally. Like just yeah, just merciless taking and taking. Not a just not a democracy. <laughs> right. There's no doubt that Rome was an unjust system. And so Jesus is caught in this supposed catch-22 where it's like if he says, oh yeah, pay the taxes, then everyone who's like, but this is an unjust government, you know, gets to pin him on that. And if he says, no, definitely don't pay taxes, then he gets arrested by Rome and, uh, you know, his earthly ministry goes a different direction. So, but, but he wasn't duped by that question for one second. And what he says is, give me a coin. And he says, whose image is on this coin? And they say Caesar's. So he says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Yeah, unpack that. What, do you, what does that mean? Well, the unspoken second half of that phrase is, render unto God that which is God's. Because mm-hmm. the question he was implying and pointing them towards is, whose image is on you? Hmm. Yeah. And scripture teaches that people, human beings are made in the imago Dei, were made in the image of God. And so with that one line, Jesus is saying, government is not arbitrary, I'm not an anarchist. You should render unto the governing Mm. authorities that which is due the governing authorities, Mm. which is challenging and was Mm. challenging to his Jewish listeners. Okay, we have to pay the tax. We have to pay taxes. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but render unto God that which is God's. And if the government is asking you to render something to it that is not due a human Mm. government, it is your moral duty before your creator to resist. And that shows up again and again and again throughout scripture, right? And it's a beautiful principle. It's a principle on which uh, democracy was eventually based, right? At at a minimum, not that democracy is the perfect fulfillment, but it's a pretty good system because it's based on that eternal truth, right? Yeah. And ah, last piece on this. Jesus was speaking to an audience who believed that Caesar was literally God, that Caesar was the son of God. The son of God, yeah. That was like his... The phrase that he used to describe himself. 
And Jesus is like, Caesar's not the son of God. I'm the son of God. Render unto Caesar the things that are appropriately due Caesar. Render unto God the things that are appropriately due to God. Wow. Yeah. So would Jesus have fought in the rebel alliance? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And the question is less. I think at some point, maybe. uh, Well, we can't presume to know what Jesus would do in Star Wars. The question is less what Jesus would do. Because Jesus, uh, in his earthly life, was there for 33 years. He didn't, there's a lot of things Jesus didn't do that Christians can and should do, like physics or, you know, medical research. I mean, there's lots of things, right? Like, because human. You didn't even solve cancer. What what the heck? (laughs) So I guess we should halt all research. No, no. Jesus came to renew the human spirit by making us right with our creator. So, So he had a limited scope for what he was there to do. The question is, should would Christians, you know, let's say we were in Star Wars, could you find the Rebel Alliance? Uh, so anyway, to me, that makes sense of a complicated world of ethics by giving us a few bright lines and better than that, a few key principles that we can anchor our lives off of. I will say the thing that seems to me the most compelling about the Rebel cause, at least for Cassian and for Andor, is that moment, and he kind of learns this when he's got his homies at that table, his his team. And he realized, and actually, you know, no, it's brought home when his mom dies. And she becomes, maybe she's the Andor of the title. Do you ever think about that? Oh my gosh, no. She's the spark of the rebellion. And Cassian's love for her is something that is very redemptive about him. It's about protecting other people. The Empire is going to destroy all sorts of people. And it's not just about you and your ability to, you know, run a small business or whatever, or smuggle your goods. It's about a whole society full of people who can't defend themselves. And if you can fight, you ought to fight. Because there's somebody out there who can't defend themselves. Well said. I mean, I think I think the Rebel Alliance meets every criteria of a just war. Yeah. Um, boy, that's a whole separate, <laughs> we'll do a bonus episode where we really pick that apart. And I know there's lots of nuance, like I'm thinking of the probability of success and legitimate government oh, sure, tenants sure. of that. But, th- but that's why just war has been debated by Christians down through the centuries, yeah. you know, and, and there are different, uh, different perspectives on, on like what's truly a just war. So, but I think for my part, yeah. it's enough to say that in a Christian worldview, there is such a thing as a just war, um, yeah. but we need to approach it carefully. Because war won't save humanity. So, Case, what does the Christian worldview say about the struggle against impossible odds? This is what I was really excited to get to, Carlin. There's a Princeton professor named Robert George, Mm -hmm. and he uh, likes to do a thought experiment with his students. He says, hey, raise your hand if you think you would have been an abolitionist if you'd lived 200 years ago. Understandably, every hand in the class goes up. Of course. And he says, okay, I believe you. If you can show me that you've already stood for an unpopular cause that ostracizes you from your peers, uh, has made you loathed and ridiculed by every powerful, influential person in your society, Uh if if you can show me that you've been abandoned by friends for something you believe, that you're willing to be called nasty names, and that you're willing to be denied valuable professional opportunities, then, then I do believe you, you might have been an abolitionist. Wow. Not to mention it wasn't the popular opinion of the day. Exactly. No, like you exactly. weren't you weren't hearing TED talks about this topic that made you feel really warm and fuzzy about it. Yeah. 
So where do we get that reforming impulse? Where do we get the kind of thinking that says, I don't care what my culture says, there's a higher standard that I need to answer to? Mm. Right. I think that's a valid question for everyone today who thinks that, they're, that they would have been a reformer or who's trying to be a reformer. Where is your higher source of morality that you mm. know you're willing to buck the trends of your culture on? Mm-hmm. The truth is Christians don't always do that well, but we are called to it and we do have examples of it. The other truth is that um, like moral crusades like MLK's work or the abolition have sort of been uh, trademarked and, uh, and we use them for commercial purposes. And so most of us think we're being, you know, warriors for justice, but I just want to say like if your cause, if your pet cause has been championed by Pepsi, you know, then you're probably not in the same camp as the abolitionists were, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. if Pepsi thinks that they'll make money because so many people love and adore the cause that they're, you know, it's like, right. it might still be a right thing to do, but it doesn't, it's not the equivalent of being like a champion for real. It's not going to cost you. It's not going to cost you the way saying like, you know, Han shot first would cost you. <laughs> Totally. I, and I have, I've lost valuable professional opportunities because of that belief. So, you know, I, am I an abolitionist? Yes. Yes. Fully. So what is going to show you if you're just a fish in the sea swimming with the current, how are you going to know what you need to fight? And then second of all, what's going to give you the, the strength and the determination to fight when everything else is against you? Right. I mean, I think on one hand, we need to acknowledge that our problem, the problem of human beings is not just a problem of knowledge. Hmm. It's not just that, like, I've never known what right and wrong are. Hmm. None of us can say that and truly believe it in our heart of heart of hearts. Hmm. We might not know the whole picture, but we're responsible for what we know. And given what we know, every single person has violated their conscience based on things that they know they shouldn't have done. And are without excuse. Hmm. So our problem isn't one of pure knowledge. It's of our ability to follow through, right? On the Hmm. things that we know are are right and wrong. Yeah. And the emphasis we place on different moral issues. To that, I think scripture gives us a plumb line. Like, scripture is really clear that there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Uh, But in his culture, that was radically unpopular. People Hmm. are like, are you kidding me? You know, I'm not the same as that dirty, you know, fill in the blank. Whatever. Tax collector. Yeah. Gentile. Today we're like, like, nice, Paul. Equality. That fits really comfortably with our worldview. Yeah, right. Pepsi makes commercials about that. (laughs) But the Bible's going to cut against our worldview in other ways. Mm. And those are the ways we need to pay attention to. All that to say, Carlin. All that to say, we need a reason to struggle against overwhelming odds, Hmm. even when we know it's not going to work out for us. Like we all admire that and we all rightly lionize people who do that. The question is, how do you get to that place? And Hmm. I think it's by believing there's something bigger than the opinions of just people around you. There's right and there's wrong and they're woven into the fabric of the universe. Mm -hmm. And it's wrong to turn a blind eye to injustice. Mm -hmm. In the real world, what kind of worldview gives you a a solid grounding for that belief. But as for ends and means, you know, I'll look forward to continuing this conversation with you because, um, 
you know, like I, I was thinking about it as we were getting ready for this, but like even thinking about the U-boats in World War II and how we cracked that code, like what's the Christian thing to do in that situation? Mm-hmm. I don't think the Bible is giving us a silver bullet for every circumstance we're ever going to face. Yeah, no. But I think what Jesus came to do is start a revolution in the human heart um, that makes us think about it differently. The example I'm thinking of is C.S. Lewis once wrote that um, if he and a young German, because he fought in World <laughs> War I, yeah. if they had killed each other in the trenches of World War I, um, in what C.S. Lewis believed was a just war to stop Germany who had invaded Belgium and was trying to take over Europe, right? Yeah, yeah. And this other, let's say this ger- young German soldier was a Christian. Lewis thinks they would have laughed about it seconds later in, in heaven. heaven. Yeah, right. That's a radical belief. I don't think that's meant, he didn't mean to make that flippant or like, therefore, let's just go to war and do whatever. I think yeah. he's actually saying something deeper and more profound than that. That hmm. while we might have to fight just wars on this side of eternity, we, we should never let go of the bigger picture of what the hmm. war of the cosmos is all about, which is about rescuing the souls of men and women. And you might not have... You might not be sitting in a control panel making the decision to sink a U-boat or let a U-boat sink or not, but you might just have the everyday decisions, you know, just the little choices in front of you, and you are held accountable to your conscience on that. Yeah, and I think Andor gives us so many positive examples to that end. Yeah. It's an amazing show. I mean, we've said it. We've said it a what lot. What can we it's say? Should we say it again? Fantastic. Hey, on the count of three, let's say it again. Ready? One, two, three. It's, it's a, a great fantastic show. Andor's the best. Show. It's a great show. I'd give it like a five out of ten, at least. What is your rating system, <laughs> madam? Five Death Stars out of ten Death Stars. Well, I, I hear what you're saying. Ten Death Stars is always better than just than just one. You know, one I mean, why Death have one? Star. You could kill five planets right now. Five hundred lightsabers, better than one. You know, there hasn't been More. a single lightsaber in Andor, and there's only been two space battles. Yes. Not everyone can afford a spaceship. And when you see a lightsaber light up, you should be like, oh, dang. You shouldn't be like, eh, yeah, all right. This is a great show. Have I mentioned that? (laughs) Uh, This show? You mean Cinema Snorkel? Ah, good jokes. Good jokes. (laughs) We got to slip them in there, you know? We got to convince the people to listen. You got to toot your own horn once in a while, you know? Toot, toot. Toot, toot. All right. That's enough of that. I hated that. (laughs) We will see you next time. Goodbye.